0: listening to City Church Long Beach Sermons Podcast. You can visit us at citychurchlongbeach.org. My name is Brenna Rubio and I'm the other pastor here at City Church of Long Beach. Uh, I'm so excited to be able to preach this morning. We have been uh, in, I think, just an amazing month. Like, I'm actually surprised by just how emotional it's been for me. as this past month we've chosen to focus on the sermon series that we have called the sermon I always wanted the church to hear. And though we always try to find a diversity of voices to teach us, to share their stories, to have a month where we have invited different women in particular who have so often been silenced in our churches and to just tell us, give it to us the the sermon that you always wanted the church to hear. I didn't get that growing up, right? Uh, in, in so much of my church experience, I never got to see anyone who looked at all like me leading. And I remember going through so many phases um, of kind of rebelling against that and then trying to comply and trying to fit into these very narrow gender boxes that the church was, was feeding to me. and and. You know news flash fast forward you know a couple decades i didn't fit that well right but i mean i went for 10 years over a decade really where i was willing to say that i was in ministry it took a, a decade before i could say wait a second i'm not just in ministry i'm a pastor that's who god has called and created me to be i'd been out of seminary for years before I went in to the office of, of the pastor who was my boss at the time to say, hey, um, you know, I think maybe I might, I might have some gifts to share with the church in terms of, of preaching. Could I try? Could I try giving a sermon like once? And I just remember, because of course it had never occurred to him to ask me, uh, but I could just see him pausing and just looking at me and like kind of trying to fit me into his picture of what a pastor looked like and a preacher looked like and and he was trying to be kind so he was like well well sure I mean this is a gracious congregation I think I think they'd be fine with a good folksy sermon and and going what does that mean like to this day I'm still not sure what a folksy sermon would be, but I was pretty sure it wasn't good, right? It was like the bar of expectation was clearly not being set high for me uh, the first time that I was going to be <laughs> invited to preach. Um, the church has placed so many limitations on women. Our script around leadership has been so limited and it's, it's beyond gender, right? As we've talked about this month, it's, it's around sexuality. It's around race, all of these different ways that we have formed boxes around leadership and and they're so limited. But this morning, what we're actually going to explore is that the expectations and the scripts for leadership are not just limited, too often they are toxic. Some of you have experienced that in your own church life, in big ways and small ways, and I am so, so sorry for that. You've experienced gaslighting and emotional and spiritual manipulation. I know from my conversations with some of you that you've you've experienced abuse at the hands of your pastors. And I feel like we're in this moment, right? We're over the last few years we've we've talked about Me Too and Church too. And I'm sorry, I didn't put a trigger warning on this. Um, it's, it's really not gonna be the focus of the sermon, it's, it's just trying to unearth the, the reality that we have had, had toxic leadership in small and large ways, ways that have been, been hurtful. And, and so the church is trying to figure out how to respond. And there's actually a surge of books being written right now and, and published around this. And I've read one, I haven't read some others. And I wonder how successful we're gonna be at really addressing the problem until we we state this really unfortunate reality and that reality is that the majority of our pastors and churches tend to be narcissists and i actually don't mean that in like a vague you know sort of abstract way i actually mean that in like a clinical data driven sort of way there's a pastor and therapist, theologian, uh, who's actually part of our family of churches, the RCA, uh, Chuck DeGroat, and he writes this. The large majority of pastoral candidates test within the cluster B grouping of personality disorders featuring narcissistic traits. Okay, so I'm going to pause right here. When we're in the process of becoming pastors, we actually take personality tests. And what he's saying is not that every pastor is like clinically a narcissist, but he's just saying that the majority of pastors test with narcissistic tendencies. So they have an inflated sense of their own importance. They have on the one hand, this really deep need for admiration and respect and kind of a stroking of the ego. And on the other hand, they tend to have a real lack of empathy for people. Not exactly what you'd expect in a pastor, right? Except, as Chuck DeGroat goes on, is it a coincidence that the majority of students, pastoral students, test on the narcissistic spectrum when the job actually asks us to say, this is the word of the Lord. When it's a job that basically invites you to say, I am speaking for God. That's not the only way to understand the job, but it's a way, right? The vast majority of pastors have narcissistic tendencies. But you know, I don't actually just want to make it about the pastors because it's about us too. The vast majority of congregations are looking for leaders who are charismatic, who they think can save them, who have all the answers for all the problems, will be able to tell them the answers to all of life's deepest questions because then it will rescue us from our uncertainty and from our fear. We are actually part of the problem in terms of the leaders that we're looking for, the leaders that we call and say, yes, you with your dynamic personality, you with your perfect haircut, you with your fill in the dot, you can save us, can't you? And we see the parallels in so many other places, in our companies, our organizations, our politics. Yeah, we look for the leader we think will save us. So this morning we are going to be exploring a story of resistance, a story that is an alternative vision for leadership that flips all of the scripts. And it's a, it's a weird one. It's gonna feel weird to us because it's an ancient story from a very, very different culture. And if you read the whole thing, which we're just gonna take a snippet this morning, if you read the whole thing, it's really violent. It just is. Um, But I think the payoff is gonna be huge. It's gonna invite us to look at leadership with new eyes and imagine better ways to lead and to follow, to be part of a community together. So our friend, Amanda Price is going to do heroic work this morning in reading this ancient text for us, which is full of names and I am so grateful. I'm not the one reading it and you all are gonna be so grateful too. So please welcome Amanda as she just does an amazing job reading this passage.
1: Good morning, church. Good morning, beautiful people. Um, I'm actually really excited that I get to read the word today. So I'm gonna get on to it. Um, Now, Deborah, a prophet and wife of Lapidob, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Rahim and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, a son of Abinoam, and Kaddish in Naphtal, and said to him, God too holy to be named, the God of Israel commands you, go take with you 10,000 mans of Naphtal and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Caesarea, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his troop to the Keshon river and give him unto your hands. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly, I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours for the God who is will deliver Caesarea unto the hands of a woman. So Deborah went went with Barak to Kadesh. People
0: of God, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Awesome, thank you so much, Amanda. You are amazing. Ah, What a story. Uh, I don't know how many of you have read it before. Uh, It's, you know, it's one of those that doesn't get preached a whole, whole lot. And if I were going to ask you the first thing that jumped out at you about the story, um, I mean, almost across the board, the first thing people are always going to talk about, right, is, is gender. Because this is actually one of those few stories in scripture that is centered around a woman, a woman who's a leader and a prophet. But as you can Probably imagine, historically she has not always been treated kindly, nor has Barack. Uh, they they're coloring outside the lines, right? They're not fitting into their gender script. Deborah is leading, Barack is saying like I'm not going to go unless you go, right? And and so historically, theologians, especially those you know of the sort of European persuasion. Uh, they, they have taken out the sticks to whack at these two. So Calvin, one of those you know, good European theologians says, if anyone challenges this ruling that women should not lead or teach by citing the case of Deborah, the obvious answer is that God's extraordinary acts do not annul the ordinary rules by which he wishes us to be bound. So in other words, he's saying, Deborah's just an exception to the rule. And he goes on to argue that these extraordinary circumstances that were requiring Deborah to be this abnormal leader, well, it was it was Brock's fault because he was being slothful. He was being cowardly and lazy. And so, of course, when the men don't do their job, that forces the women into these unnatural positions. So I have to tell you. I just don't spend a lot of time worrying about these things anymore. These perspectives like Calvin, like I just don't actually wanna spend a lot of my time and energy uh, engaging with this. It's it's one way you could read this text. If you have a certain perspective and that's what you wanna put on this story, you can make it work. But I think as we dig into it today, I think you're going to see there's a much more satisfying and helpful way that we can read this story. Because I actually don't think God cares about these old gender scripts. It's just not the God that I see over the whole storyline of the Bible. Someone who's concerned with all of these external markers of hierarchy and in and out. Scripture gives us so many indications that that God pours his spirit out on all people. Maybe you've heard this verse before, but it's worth saying again, this this beautiful picture of what it means to live together in the wholeness of community from the book of Joel. I will pour out my spirit on all people, all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in these days." What an incredible promise and picture. So this is what Deborah is living into. You know, as I read the text, it occurs to me that um, there's not actually a lot of like explanation around Deborah being a judge, which means a civic sort of leader and a prophet a religious or spiritual leader, it's like the text doesn't see it as being that big of a deal or that abnormal. In fact, what it might indicate is that there is actually more matriarchy, more female leadership going on at the time than we actually see recorded in the text. Certainly throughout the Old Testament, there are hints of that if we have the eyes to see, if we have wonderful people and scholars to show us that it's there. Um, So she's a leader, she's a judge and a prophet. What does it mean that the spirit was moving in Deborah as a prophet? At a very basic level, there's just the sense that she was the one who carried the Lord's presence to the people, his presence and his voice. and, And in turn, she would speak to God for the people I love how she describes herself though, later in the book of Judges, she describes herself as a mother over Israel. And there's just the fullness of that phrase, right, of just this sense of strong leadership that's also incredibly caring and nourishing. She says, I sit as a mother over Israel. Will Gaffney, a theologian and pastor whose book Womanist Midrash, a group of us have been reading together each week, uh, she describes Deborah's role this way. Deborah suffered with her people. You see, a prophet is of the people and for the people. A prophet loves the people and leads the people. A prophet weeps with and for the people and when necessary, bleeds with and for the people. There are a whole lot of folk calling themselves prophet and prophetess in this day and age. Some of them have it printed right on their business cards. Well, Deborah didn't have a business card. I just, I love that description, that description, because I think, yeah, I know a lot of great pastors. I know pastors who love their people and bleed with their people and weep with their people. It's just that I I also know a lot of pastors with business cards. I know a lot of pastors who have credentials without a whole lot of care. isn't Isn't this the heart of what it should mean to be a spiritual leader, to be someone who loves and cares? And so you start to wonder and you start to ask yourself, How did we get here? How did we get to this place of moving from leadership as love to leadership as building a platform for yourself, a platform for your own ego? Well, the truth is we talk about being community all the time in the church. We talk about being one body, this deep interconnectedness woven togetherness, but then almost in the same breath, so often we start isolating one person as special. One person that we put off to the side because they will, they will lead us because everything needs a head, doesn't it? In your church, in your organization, in your family. So we start isolating. This person, this one person who's going to save us. And honestly, so many of these pastors who I've known who maybe are more the type with a business card, they are so deeply lonely. It's not a happy place to be, it's not a life giving place to be. It's lonely, it's pressure filled. You're always always feeling like and at any moment, you know, your anything could shatter that fragile, fragile ego. It's not a good place to be. And so what we see in this pic, in this, uh, this story, though, is Barack, excuse me, um, Barack being able to say like, I don't actually think it has to be this way. I think there may be an alternative oh, I feel like this character has been so misunderstood. So let's re-examine the words that he speaks to Deborah when she tries to send him into battle. Um, and these are the words that Calvin and others try to use to say like, oh, Barack, that coward, that coward. If you go with me, I will go, too scared to go by himself. What if Barack was actually just reading from a different script, following a much more ancient pattern than we've been able to see. You see, it was so common in ancient Israel that military leaders would want their prophets to go along with them because the prophets were the ones who carried the presence of the Lord. And so now we look at what Barak is really saying, and he's just saying, look, I can't win this battle on my own. I need God with me and I look at you, Deborah, and I see evidence that the spirit is on you. You are the one who carries the spirit of the Lord and and so I need you. I need God's presence in you, the gifts that God has given you. I need you and I don't care how unusual this partnership may look to others. Unless you go, I will not go. I will not go without you. Friends, doesn't that sound so healthy? To know your limits, to know that you actually need other people, that you actually don't embody all the gifts and all the wisdom of the world and to have no shame in saying, let's partner. Let's do it together. You know, we're really big. On partnership here at City Church of Long Beach, it's one of our stated values. We talk about being better together, and we try really hard to make our stated values things that actually guide how we do things. And so, I think in this better together idea, and one of the big places that you see it lived out, I hope in a way that sort of spreads, spreads throughout what we do, is is the fact that Bill and I are co pastors we don't actually try to do this thing on our own and it's really funny because people still get a little weirded out by co-pastors i think sometimes there's still a little bit of like how does that work doesn't someone need to be in charge i mean it's the same thing people say about marriage sometimes right if they're coming from a more conservative perspective Um, but doesn't someone have to be in charge and you think well no, I mean, we, we need each other, right? We have really different gifts. Doesn't it work so much better? Doesn't it make so much more sense to say, you lead in the area of your gifting and I'll follow and support. And sometimes I'm gonna lead in the area of my gifting and you get to follow and support. Why, why does it have to be more complicated than that? Think about just today at church, it is ridiculous the amount of things that are happening in our church, and the amount of giftedness from all of you that is being poured out so that this one day can happen. Our AV team and their gifts with technology this morning. Uh, our wonderful Megan, who read to our kids, right? So, with, with gifts of teaching and, and caring for children. Our worship leaders who rotate when they're gonna worship between the Dolmages and Alex, you know, without any ego. All the time, Um, we have a church right now working at our new community house uh, for families who are transitioning out of homelessness. We have a crew over there working right now and they're from a totally different church and they actually don't mind partnering with us. No ego, right? Who's gonna get the credit? Who's leading? Who cares? We're building a fence to help with the house. Let's do this thing. Maybe we need each other. There's a family who's going to bring a meal today for the families at the house. There are other people who are getting together and somebody's organized so that we can give out Easter eggs to the community. What if we all just need each other? What if we just need to lead and contribute? And and yes, that is all leadership. That is all leadership. Life is a group project and we all get to take our turn contributing our gifts and saying, here. I know what to do here. Let me lead you. If you go with us, we will go. So right now, I want to introduce you guys. Some of you know her already, but I want to introduce you to someone who definitely fits into the category of someone that I want to go with and I want to get to lead and follow alongside this awesome woman. So I wanna ask our friend, Lisa Carpenter, who is part of our board of elders, as well as just being an awesome person. Uh, Yeah, Lisa has unmuted. Lisa, can you wave at the nice people? Hi, everyone. (laughs) Okay, so start us off by just introducing yourself a little bit about how you came to City Church and some of the ways you, you participate in the community.
2: Yeah, so uh, Alex and I, um, I'm married to the other worship leader, Alex. So we came to City Church about a couple years ago. And now we had been going to a pretty progressive church for the past 10 years or so. Um, And it just came to a point where um, we were just saddened and heartbroken that we weren't able to bring anyone to church. Um, There are a few times where there were some um, harsh messages and it was not affirming to our, um, to our loved ones in the LGBTQ community. So we decided to make that move. I had found Bill's blog like many people here a few years previously, and we decided to check out City Church.
0: We are so glad you did because it has just been a joy to have you as part of the community. And, and so you're not only a member, of the board but you're one of our board vice presidents so you together with laura you help bill and i sort of like figure out what we need to be working on together as a board uh, Mm -hmm. on a given month and you've particularly taken the lead on thinking about how we give as a church right so yeah so many ways that you're leading us and we're so grateful tell us a little bit i just want to be able to give people a picture of mm-hmm. some of your leadership giftings. And I know it can feel a little weird to like brag on yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way I wanna ask this is just to think of a time where you know that you were really able to contribute to a group that was working mm-hmm. towards something. It could be a church, it could be at work, um, but like, how did that feel? What gifts did you use? How did you need your team? Just tell us a little bit about that experience. Yeah, so June of
2: last year, I had had a baby and was coming back to work uh, from maternity leave and it was in June, so it was right after the murder of George Floyd and there were tons of protests and you know the nation was in complete chaos and um, my organization at work um, they decided not only not to speak out against the injustices but they had told everyone that we were not to speak about it Mm. Um, so at that time I decided along with a few co-workers to gather a letter um, and lead the organization we We put out um, this letter to everyone and had people who who believed in it to to sign it and to send it to the leadership of our organization. So that took a lot of courage um, and um, shout out to Brandon Adachi, who is also one of the co-writers of that letter, who's going to City Church as well. Um, So yeah, that was a big step forward in leadership at work that um, I. I'm very proud of to this day.
0: Mm, I love that. And I love how that story highlights a lot of the gifting that I know to be true of you. One is just your passion and your heart for justice and especially for those who are tend to be pushed to the margins to, to move towards to center them like Jesus did. like that passion that would draw forth that kind of courage from you. And then Lisa, you are that quiet leader who I think half of your leadership is how you ask questions and how you don't let it go, you know, to Mm -hmm. say, so to write a letter and to say like, here are my questions and concerns and I will use my voice Mm -hmm. and probably organizing other people. You're an incredible administrator. um, Mm -hmm. So to be able to know how to work that and, and communicate clearly. Yeah. That I can totally see how you are like for a time such as this, person in your workplace. You needed to be there. That's incredible. Thanks, yeah. So, so how has leadership in the church worked out generally for you? I mean, you, you are a leader here at City Church. Mm-hmm. Does that just feel like natural to you? Like, of course I'm a leader or, I mean, I kind of yeah. know the answer to this. Of course I'm definitely. leading, I'm leading <laughs> but definitely not. Okay. Tell us more about that.
2: Yeah. So even when you asked me to be interviewed this morning, I was like, are you talking to me, brother? <laughs> and it's been like that ever since um, transitioning to study church. You know, I'm married to Alex and he is probably the stereotypical leader of the church, white male, um, very- Maybe not a narcissist. Yeah, <laughs> he's not a narcissist, <laughs> um, but he's extremely outgoing, super fun, like is willing to to speak and encourage. And he's just, he's that he's that guy. So um, when I, when we came to City Church and um, you and Bill were getting to know us and asking us some great questions about our giftings and then eventually inviting me into leadership, it was a complete shock to me because I had always been Alex's wife, you know, the one that would stand next to him relegated to kids ministry tucked away in the corner with all the children <laughs> um, so it's just been such a blessing and I can't tell you what a difference it's made I'm going to choke up um, oh. in my life because of you two um, just drawing out that leadership in me so I just thank you so much
0: well that made me choke up too Man, you know, Lisa, when you and I were texting just a little bit about this and and you replied back with a who me and I'm still shocked it wasn't Alex. And I just, I remember replying like, I'm still shocked that nobody called this out in you before. That is still shocking to me because from the very first that we met you, I mean, Alex is awesome. We're taking nothing away from Alex. He is absolutely awesome, but man, you are too and the ways you would ask questions and just be so insightful, such a good listener, such a good caretaker with people that we sent your way to say, hey, you know, could you connect? Like I've said this before, but you are like the most like people-oriented extreme introvert I've ever met. It is, it's incredible how you balance those two things. Um, So we're so grateful for you. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for being willing to share your story a little bit. Thanks, Brenna. Yeah. I am so grateful for Lisa Carpenter, and I'm sure you guys are too, that this is one of the leaders in our church. And, and I just go again, just wow, to be overlooked for so long. And yet that is the way it works so often in our churches. And that's actually the way it works in this story, because there is actually a plot twist in this story that so often gets left out when people focus so much on this whole like Deborah Barack thing, like who's messing up here. Um, There's this incredible plot twist that gets completely overlooked. Because you see verse nine, which we're gonna put again in the chat, where Deborah is responding to Barack's request that she go with him and she says this, because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours for the God who is will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. People hear this all the time and it sounds like a couple things. One, it sounds like a punishment, like Deborah is slapping Barack on the wrist for being a coward. And two, unless you keep reading further in the story, you assume that Deborah is that person, right? Like she's gonna get the glory. She's gonna get the credit. And that is not at all how the story goes because instead what happens is this, this completely unexpected character, another woman named Yael comes onto the scene and she is the one who kills the enemy Sisera. It's into her hands that he falls as she, she tricks him and um, you know she's not a warrior. In fact, she's the wife of one of Sisera, the enemy's allies. And so she she tricks him and she crosses tribal lines, lines of loyalty to join the people of God in their struggle. She's this unexpected person pushed to the margins of the story. The kind of person that Jesus loves to center over and over and over again. And she's a character who has often had a special resonance for our Black, Indigenous, and women of color who are so often overlooked in our churches, in our society, undervalued, and yet are so strong and are doing so much work. I actually stumbled across this amazing poem this last week written by a pastor. And a community activist. They told me, be obedient like Ruth, cry like Hannah, be pretty like Esther. But I choose to be Yael, delivering liberation with my bare hands and the tools necessary to rebuild the house. Yael, this figure of unexpected strength, this unexpected Partner, she does the work, she wins the battle, and she is celebrated so lavishly by Deborah and Barack. There is there's no power struggle as they're giving credit for the battle. There's no skimping. You say, ah, oh, she is the most blessed of women, the most blessed of tent dwelling women. They know that she was the one they needed, and they have just no hesitation and lifting her up. Don't you wish this is how all of our churches were? Don't you wish this is how our communities were, that we had cultures of inclusion and celebration, of pulling all those pushed to the margin, making them the center, everyone invited to the table, everyone given honor and respect, power and influence. Like Donna said last week, to be in a rush to give away power as fast as they can because they know it's not a limited supply. It's a renewable resource that only grows as we share it. And we see how far we are from that over and over again. And we have to take time to be sad about that, to admit, There is so much still going on, to grieve the continuing violence, especially the violence against our Asian American and Pacific Islander sisters. To grieve the way that oppressive systems are still being fought for and enabled even over these last weeks and the new efforts to suppress voters the ways that we are continually shutting out and pushing to the side in our communities. Our leaders hoard power and hang on to their microphones instead of sharing them. Deborah actually was not, I don't think, threatening Barack. She wasn't punishing him. She was actually saying, this is a picture of reality. If you're going to commit yourself to working with others, it's going to mean giving up your place at the front of the line. Going together means not always having your name be the one in lights. Giving up power also means giving up the illusion of control. That's reality. It's just what it means to follow Jesus. That's actually where we're gonna end today is just recognizing this is the way of Jesus. This is uh, the day on the Christian calendar that's sometimes called Palm Sunday. It marks the beginning of Holy Week as we are getting ready for Easter Sunday, next Sunday. And so it's a time where we remember Jesus and his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is kind of the formal traditional language, Jesus' triumphal entry. And it was kind of a triumph. There were people, you know, waving palm branches around, let's calling it Palm Sunday, you know, praising him, shouting out, kind of like he was like a, you know, just this great big star, right? Coming into Jerusalem. They were so excited, so excited because these were people living under oppression and they were expecting Jesus to be a certain kind of leader. Actually, the kind of leader that we see in a lot of our churches. They wanted him to be a conquering king, a warrior hero who would overthrow all of the oppressive powers. And instead, he came riding into town on a donkey. The book of Matthew points us to this Old Testament passage that explains the why of the donkey this way. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's righteous, he's victorious and he's lowly. Not the word that we tend to associate with leaders. That riding of the donkey was all about humility. This humility, that was absolutely going to topple the status quo. Just completely tear down all the toxic ways that we have set up hierarchies of power instead of partnership. It was a humility that would set our upside down way of doing things right. Totally flip the script. He was not the leader that they expected, but he was the leader that they needed and I wonder this morning, if he might be the leader that you need to. Maybe he's meeting you on the margins, whispering, I see you, Maya El, rise up. Maybe he's inviting you to mount your donkey too, Barack, to admit your need and make some room for unexpected partners in the fight. Or maybe he's inviting you to celebrate, Deborah and sing a fierce mother song of liberation and inclusion over your people. I don't know what Jesus is speaking to you this morning, but let's keep inviting him to flip the script.